0: All right. If you don't hear that, you know, there's a problem. I was speaking to a fellow rabbi when I was up in New York and he was telling me uh, how recently he was giving a class. He started, he missed recording. I said, how do you miss recording it? You you tell all your students. He says, well, I started the recording. Then there was something funny I wanted to say. So I stopped recording it and I forgot to restart. But but, um, I guess maybe he actually had something funny to say, unlike me. (laughs) Uh, But we have a great class for you. and. so the story goes, I don't know, you know, there was a good marriage joke about the topic of this class, but we're not going to go with that one. But uh, if you want if you want to get it, come to me after the class. But uh, the other joke is, um, I recently saw a psychic, a mystic, and a palm reader all laughing together at something I couldn't understand. Maybe it was a insight joke. <laughs> okay, so today's class, we're going to discuss. <laughs> Today's class, we're going to discuss Jewish mysticism. Some people think of Jewish mysticism as some form of palm reading and insight. Some people think of Jewish mysticism as something really wonderful. Um, All different opinions out there. As usual, the purpose of our class is not to convince you one way or the other. That's not the point of this course. That's for other classes. The point of this class is to present to you traditional Jewish belief about the different Jewish books in the library, which means, for example, as we get throughout the class, uh, we're going to discuss certain books. Maybe there's controversy around them. I might tell you something about it. Just remember, I'm giving you shorthand to really give you a general idea of the books. Um, for example, Kabbalah. I'll present Kabbalah in a specific way. Uh, if you want to get scholarly, there's three ways of looking at it. It's not you can't do it all in one class. Uh, however, you're going to get a good idea and you walk away with a better idea of what Jewish Kabbalah mysticism is. And then we'll get to Jewish Hasidism, Hasidic Jewish thought. So I hope you're all ready to dive in because I am. I've got a lot of insight. Okay. So um, the first thing is Is Jewish mysticism really part of Judaism? If you look in the Torah, Um, you might think not, you know. Just like the oral tradition, which we started with, right? A lot of people have a a feeling that the oral tradition is not part of the Torah. Jewish mysticism, most definitely people feel maybe not part of the Torah. Why so? Because Jewish mysticism does not make a clear appearance on the Jewish horizon until uh, much later in Judaism clear appearance and i'm not going to focus on the word clear uh because there are many hints to it as i'll get to but jewish mysticism otherwise known as kabbalah kabbalah you may have heard the word kabbalah the kabbalah center um jewish mysticism kabbalah does not appear in the jewish scene until let's say clearly about 800 years ago 700 years ago and even more clearly 500 years ago with the arizal Uh, So you'll open up a Torah and you'll look in it and you'll see a bunch of laws and telling you to listen to God and you you won't see, you'll say, where's the mysticism? Uh, You'll open up a Mishnah, you'll open up a Talmud. Uh, You won't see a lot of mysticism. It's hard to find it. However, um, even somebody who considers himself a skeptic of Jewish mysticism today, it would be hard to escape um, anything about Jewish mysticism. Jewish mysticism really means the study of the world beyond, right? In other words, Jewish law is about what we do here. We know that we have to uh, keep kosher, put on tefillin, listen to what God asks us to. Jewish mysticism is a study of a world beyond, the metaphysical. There's a, a lot of hints. You know, so there are some people who might say, well, what do we care about that? Let us just, you know, let's just do the law, study the law. And uh, we'll get to that at the end of the class why it's important to study it today. Uh, but beyond that, who says that God ever, you know, revealed that wisdom to us? So there are many, many hints uh, in the Torah itself that there is some type of Jewish mysticism or secrets. Some passages in the Torah are just unclear. For example, uh, the Torah talks about uh, when it was two weeks ago when God appeared at Mount Sinai, the people were looking at God's feet and they looked like sapphire. There are some strange. Uh, statements you read the books of the prophets most definitely the visions of ezekiel and what goes on over there um if you read on yom kippur the story of uh the 10 martyrs the the story of yom kippur is there was a roman general he came to the 10 he came to 10 of the great sages and he said you know 10 of the jewish people sold their brother joseph into slavery i want to take you and throw you in you know so i'm going to kill you for selling him into slavery because that's the Jewish law. Kidnapping is punishable by death. So the, the, in the prayers and the liturgy, we actually say that um, Rabbi Ishmael said one of God's names and he ascended to heaven and he spoke to an angel to ask him what to do. So we see there are people who had certain mystical powers. It's clear from our liturgy. And you look in the stories of the Talmud, you'll see clear references of people who had an understanding of the world beyond. And so we're going to start here with uh, one clear text that. Um, shows us in the Talmud most most clearly that there most definitely was
1: a um, that there is
0: a myst- there's there's some mystical worlds. So we're going to read this. This is a story. Um, let's open up here. Okay. Uh, what page is it on? What page is it on? 234. Huh?
1: 234.
0: 234. All right. Let's go to page 234 on the screen. Uh, if you have your book, go to page 234. Uh, two, three, four is less than less than six. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, oh, I see the page numbers on the top are not don't match up. Okay. So we're gonna go over here. All
1: right. This is from the Talmud
0: Chagiga. So again, the Talmud, as we already discovered, is about two thousand years old. This is well before official Kabbalah appears. Official Jewish mysticism appears on the scene, and it says like this in the Talmud. Four sages entered the orchard. Now, the orchard, the Hebrew word that it uses for orchard is part. Now, well, actually, let's read the text. Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Ben Azai looked and died. Ben Zoma looked and went mad. Acher cut down the planting, became a heretic. Rabbi Akiva entered in wholeness and peace and emerged in wholeness and peace. So what is it talking about? I mean, you typically don't walk into a garden unless it's full of psychedelics and have this type of experience. So, what type of orchard is it talking about? You know, the Talmud wouldn't just be telling us a story about psychedelics. Um, so, the word Pardis in Hebrew is actually a hint and an acronym to the mystical world. How so? Um, well, let me let me let's see if I can show you on the screen. Let's see if I can show you on the screen. Uh, the word Pardis, I hope they put it on here. I'm not actually sure they did. Uh, yes, they did. Okay. So let me skip a drop over here because I like to skip around. Uh, The word Pardis, let's skip. Uh, Orchard, the esoteric teachings. Um, Oh, they don't put it on the screen. Sorry, I thought they did. The word Pardis is the Hebrew letter Pei. Letter Pei, the letter Resh, the letter Da, the letter Sama. That means something to you, but it's an acronym for Pshat which means the simple understanding of the Torah. The Resh stands for Remez, which means the hints of the Torah. The dalad stands for Drush, Drash, Medrash, like we spoke about, expounding. And then finally, the final letter of the Samach stands for Sod, which means secrets. So Pardis means when you're getting into the deepest secrets of the Torah, the mystical, the esoteric part of the Torah. And so what it's telling us here is that there were four great sages. These were all great sages. And they entered into the orchard, meaning they entered into the deepest secrets of the Torah, the Pardis. And because of its great depth of teaching, only one of them was able to exit in peace. Only one of them was able to exit in wholeness and peace. The other three were great sages, contemporaries of Rabbi Akiva, but they were severely damaged by the experience because uh, being exposed to great truths can be very uh, dangerous. You know, some of the most powerful things in this world are also very dangerous. For example, nuclear power. Um, nuclear power is probably the easiest way to uh, fix our energy issues. But nuclear power is also very dangerous. Um, so everything that's powerful can also be dangerous. For example, my jokes, they're very, very good. But uh, apparently they're very dangerous for some people, you know. Uh, so, there you know, there's that as well. Um, So there's just a clear hint in the Talmud that there was this uh, teaching that was always there. And it was hidden for many, many years, similar to the um, oral tradition that was hidden for many years. The uh, secrets and the mystical teachings were hidden and only taught from one person to another. Let's take a look at at some slides they have here on the board. And I I, I passed them, but let me go backwards because I thought they were going to have something there. But let's go back. Um, So Kabbalah, which we're discussing Jewish mysticism, is also called Sod. That was the Samach of Pardas Sod, which means secret. Kabbalah's teachings are received secrets transmitted through the generation.
1: And the word Kabbalah, anybody knows what the word Kabbalah means? Kabbalah means received.
0: Kabbalistic teachers are called Kabbalah. They're received. They're not Derived as much, they are more received. They're divine inspiration. The deep secrets are going to be more divine inspiration. Uh, we read the writings of, of the late uh, mystics. They're having divine inspiration. So it's received, it's less derived. um So Kabbalah and so Kabbalah's teachings are received secrets. And more importantly, they were kept as secrets. They're called secret because they were actually a secret. The oral tradition was never a secret. It was taught, anybody who wanted to study it could come and study the oral tradition. It's not called secret. The Kabbalah was a secret. It wasn't taught to everybody because of its great power. Uh, It was a danger to teach everybody. And it was transmitted only to select group of sages who were conveyed in esoteric terminology. Uh, The study of Kabbalah without prior preparation and guidance can be dangerous. And Kabbalah is the most misunderstood and misrepresented part of the Torah. Anybody here heard of a lady called Nadana? I know of her because she was involved in the Kabbalah Center. Um, there's a group out there called the Kabbalah Center. And uh, they teach Kabbalah. You can open up a book of Kabbalah. And you can read and think you know what you're understanding. Uh, but you don't necessarily really do. It's a ve- it, it can create a lot of problems. A lot of people like to study the Kabbalah.
1: I, always, I huh? always
2: worried. I always worried what her influence would be to this holy manuscript you know uh, collection i always worried since i i heard of it <laughs>
0: anyway. well, she was um well she just got into it because other others were into it but you know it's it's uh it's a very misunderstood branch it's a very uh, exciting branch you know secrets and esoteric and you know like the the the, the uh, golem of prague was made with uh, mysticism um, so again, Kabbalah contains a lot of powerful ideas. When you read it, it sounds very esoteric. So it's very interesting to read, but you can also read it and have no idea what you're saying. You know, you can read about light and uh, you know, bright lights and explosions and all cool stuff. Um, but if you don't have, I don't want to say the inner eye, right? But if you don't really have a if you're not spiritually attuned, you can completely misunderstand it. And you can take the power of Kabbalah and uh, use it in the wrong way. Um, So Kabbalah, just one second. So the Kabbalah, the mysticism is kind of a story of, uh, on the one hand, they always wanted to pass it down. At the same time, they always had to conceal it. So it was a very difficult type of teaching. Unlike the oral tradition, which they were always teaching, the Kabbalah was always, always hidden. And um, Maimonides even writes about it in his book, talks about what was called Meister Merkava the story of the chariot the story of creation and he says that um he says that uh, you know he he gives a little bit of the, of the ideas and then he says you know we don't teach these things in public it's not taught in public uh yes who had a question somebody had a question
1: yeah I just had a comment um yes. isn't it um the fact if it's the um separated from learning Torah, then it's completely taken out of context. And that was like the issue with the Kabbalah centers.
0: We'll we'll show you later on today how you can understand what it says. Yeah, we'll show you. Um, We will get to it because remember, this class is all about not just hearing from me, but experiencing it. All right, we're gonna show a lesson video, which is gonna give you a little bit of the history of Kabbalah. You can also follow along in your books to page 238 um, and on. Uh, this will give you a little bit of history. Uh, JLI did a better job at this video than the other one, so it's less boring. I think so. I hope so. So uh, it is a little bit of history for history buffs. Hopefully, you'll enjoy it. And if you don't, don't blame me. <laughs> OK.
1: Uh, oh, I'm, I got to go forward.
0: Uh... Right, Kabal deals with most fundamental truths. Of existence? Sorry, whoops, I uh, I meant to mute myself and I
1: stopped
2: it. The Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalah, formed an integral part of the Torah's transmission from its very beginnings. The earliest Kabbalistic works are attributed to Abraham, the first Jew, or even earlier to Adam, the first man. The Talmud and the Midrashim incorporate many Kabbalistic passages. These teachings, however, were the exclusive province of a small number of sages who engaged in the study of this esoteric wisdom and even fewer who dared to disseminate it. The prophet Ezekiel's vision of the divine chariot, Merkava, recorded in the book of Ezekiel, is the biblical source for many Kabbalistic principles and ideas. A number of early Kabbalistic texts were composed in Mishnaic times, in the first and second century of the Common Era. These texts, however, are extremely terse and mysterious, their meaning decipherable only to those who were privy to the oral tradition that accompanied them. The great Mishnaic sage, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai taught the wisdom of Kabbalah to a close circle of disciples. These discourses and discussions were recorded in the Zohar, which remains the most basic text of Kabbalah. The Zohar, however, would remain a secret text for more than a thousand years, although snippets of it found their way into some of the Torah works composed in the interim. The first fissures in the veil of secrecy surrounding Kabbalah began to appear in the 12th century in Spain, France, Italy, and Germany, where small groups of Kabbalists and their disciples were expounding and transcribing their teachings. It was during this period that the Zohar was first published, making its hitherto hidden teachings available to those who were admitted into the secretive Kabbalistic circles. The Hasidim of Ashkenaz was a school of Jewish mystics who were active in the German Rhineland in the 12th and 13th centuries. Its leaders, Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid and Rabbi Elazar Roqueach of Worms. One of the preeminent sages of Spanish Jewry, Nachmanides authored important works in all areas of Torah, biblical commentary, Talmudic analysis, Torah law, philosophy, and ethics. Nachmanides was also a master Kabbalist who incorporated many Kabbalistic ideas into his commentary on the Torah. Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia and his disciples, active in 13th century Italy, emphasized the practice of meditative Kabbalah and the attainment of mystical union with God. Other noted Kabbalists of the medieval period include the anonymous author of the foundational Kabbalistic work Ma'areche Te'elokut and Rabbi Yosef Gikatila, Rabbi Menachem Mercanti, Rabbi Meir Ibn Gabai, and Rabbi Yehuda Chayat. Despite the surge in dissemination by the medieval Kabbalists, Kabbalah was still a secret discipline, studied and taught by an exclusive circle of mystics. The next breakthrough came in the mid-16th century, when Svat, a city in the north of the Holy Land became a center of Jewish mystical learning. One of the early teachers of Kabbalah in Svat was Rabbi Shlomo al-Kabetz, who is known as the author of the mystical poem, Lechadodi, Come, my beloved, to meet the bride, sung in Jewish communities on Friday evening to welcome the Shabbat. Rabbi Yosef Karo, known primarily as the author of the Shulchan Aruch Code of Jewish Law, was also an accomplished Kabbalist, who recorded his mystical visions in his Magid Mesharem, at the hub of the Svat mystics were two great teachers of Kabbalah, Rabbi Moshe Cardavero, known as Ramak, and Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, known by the acronym Ari, the lion. Remach's Encyclopedia Cardis Ramonim, Orchard of Pomegranates, was a 1st of its kind systematic explanation of the multitude of worlds, virot, and concepts that populate Kabbalistic teaching. Ari, although his sojourn in Svat was cut short after only two years when he died in a plague at the age of 38, left behind numerous disciples and a vast body of teachings. Indeed, almost all subsequent Jewish mystical learning is predicated on the Ariz teaching. Ari revolutionized the realm of Jewish mystical learning by proclaiming that the restrictions on disseminating Kabbalistic teachings applied only in earlier generations, and that in these times, it is permitted and obligatory to reveal this wisdom. As a result, a number of Ariz disciples labored to record and publicize his teachings and to seat centers of Kabbalistic learning throughout the Jewish world. One of these disciples, Rabbi Israel Sarug, traveled for 20 years throughout Italy, the Balkans, Germany, Poland, Turkey, Egypt, and elsewhere to introduce the Lurianic Kabbalah. From Tzfat, the teachings of Kabbalah spread across the Jewish world. In the following generations, additional masters and schools of Kabbalistic learning developed in various Jewish communities. Maharal was a mystic and philosopher who expressed Kabbalistic ideas in philosophical terms. His teachings influenced many subsequent schools of Jewish thought. Maharal's Kabbalah appears to derive from earlier sources, as the Tzfatian Kabbalah had not yet reached Eastern Europe in his day. There is a tradition that Maharal used Kabbalistic formulae to create a golem, a humanoid, to save the Jewish community of Prague from the frequent blood libels of the time. Another influential figure in Jewish philosophy and mysticism was Rabbi Ishayahu Horowitz, who served as a rabbi in numerous Jewish communities in both Europe and the Holy Land, including Dubna, Frankfurt, Prague, Jerusalem, Tzfat, and Tiberias. He's known as Shalah after his magnum opus, Shnei Luchot Habrit, Two Tablets of the Covenant, which blends Kabbalah, Talmudic discourse, Torah law and customs, biblical commentary, and ethics. Shalah's works incorporate the teachings of Ramak and Ari and their disciples. Other 16th and 17th century Kabbalists include Rabbi Yisrael Najar of Gaza, Rabbi Menachem Mazariah Difano of Italy, and Rabbi Neftali Hertz Bachrach of Germany. Prominent 18th century Kabbalists include Ramchal, a prodigious author of Kabbalah, philosophy, ethics, and poetry, and Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar. The Gras School of Kabbalah encompasses the Kabbalistic teachings of Rabbi Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna, and his disciples. In Jerusalem, the Bet El School of Kabbalah was a center of mystical learning for 250 years. Its leaders included Rabbi Shalom Sharabi of Yemen and Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, the Chida. Notwithstanding all of this activity and publications, Kabbalah remained a closed book for the great majority of Jews. The teachings remained esoteric, requiring a subtle mind and extensive knowledge and training to properly understand. As a rule, the restrictions placed on the study of Kabbalah were still widely enforced. For example, a person had to be past the age of 40 and had to be thoroughly versed in the revealed portions of the Torah, such as Talmud and Halakha, before they would be permitted to approach its hidden element. The final breakthrough, which paved the way for the realization of the Ariz Declaration that the time had come for the inner soul of Torah to be revealed came with the founding of the Hasidic Movement by Rabbi Israel Baal Shem in 1734. In addition to revealing an entirely new dimension of Torah, Hasidism also popularized and made accessible the teachings of Kabbalah by explaining its ideas in ways that made them comprehensible and applicable to all.
0: All right. So hopefully that gave you a good background. If you didn't catch it, there were five stages. But simply put, there was a stage where it was very hidden, and over the generations, it became more revealed. In the times of the Arizal, that's when he first said it's time that everybody should study Kabbalah. He announced, you know, the, I mean, you may have heard the restriction of not learning it, you know, under the age of forty. He said everybody should study it, but that really wasn't picked up by everybody until much later. Um, in the times of the, the beginning of the Hasidic movement, so the question is: What exactly changed? What exactly changed? Why was the study of Kabbalah suddenly allowed to be studied by everybody? What you know? What what happened uh, suddenly in you know the 15th century? Is, well, 16th century, right? 16th century. Um, what exactly happened? What exactly changed? Um, Obviously, Hasidism coming into uh, before allowed Kabbalah to be comprehensible to everybody. If you study any of those other books of Kabbalah, although those are proliferation of people studying Kabbalah, that again they were limited to the scholars. Suddenly, having a lexicon that was available for everybody made it more attainable. Now, I do have to say another thing that plays into this is a lot of people generally were a lot of Jews were illiterate for for many generations uh, some of them you know they knew their prayers by heart but they had to go to work at a very young age so that obviously wouldn't help but the question is why well you, you in Judaism we always ask the question why why now what changed at this moment in history two three hundred years ago in the times of the Baal Shem Tov that um, suddenly the esoteric teachings are should be taught to everybody in other words we understand now we have a lexicon to understand it but why should we suddenly be studying it? What's the purpose? Um, so, on the most basic level, you could say, well, everything changes. I mean, the Torah is always, uh, you know, changing, and to an extent, right? The oral tradition wasn't written down written down till much later, and then there was the mission, then there was the Talmud, then there was the code of Jewish law. So similarly, you might say there was a natural evolution of Kabbalah. You can say that. You can go with that answer, but uh, we're gonna take it. A little bit deeper we'll take it a little bit deeper and we're going to show you it's going to be in text number four this is a uh, very famous text from um the, the keser shemtov which is the book of the teachings of the bal shemtov so if you look at text number four this is an unbelievable uh thing let me see if i can get my uh mouse over to the right place anybody sees my mouse oh there it is okay text number four it says like this oh I have to skip the brief overview. Okay. Um, text number four says like this. On Rosh Hashanah of the year, 5507, that's the Jewish year. In the English year, that's 1746. The Baal Shem Tov says, my soul ascended to the higher worlds. I rose level after level until I reached the chamber of Mashiach. I asked Mashiach, when will the master come? He answered, By this you will know, when your teachings, meaning the teachings of Hasidism, will become known and revealed throughout the world, your wellsprings will be spread to the outside. In other words, Mashiach was answering the Baal Shem Tov. So we hear we have a similar story, right? Like, you know, Rabbi Yishmael said some prayers, went up to heaven. The Baal Shem Tov came to Mashiach, says, when are you coming already? You know, it's been a long time. We've been in exile for a long time. So the answer was... When your teachings will spread throughout the world, that's when the Mashiach will come. Which is an interesting answer. What's the wouldn't what you think he'd say, Well, um, you know, when you finish studying all of the uh, well, you know, when everybody does the 613 commandments, that's when I'm gonna come. Isn't it right? That should be the answer, right? In fact, there's a story in the Talmud. In the Talmud, it says, um, uh, a great sage came to uh, came to Mashiach and asked the one of the Mashiach coming. And Mashiach basically said, I'll come any day. Whenever you listen to God's voice, that's when I'm going to come. So what is going on over here? Why suddenly do we need this revelation of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings, which is adapted Kabbalah, as we're going to show. Why do we need these teachings in order to bring the Mashiach? And uh, the answer is, of course, we can spend a whole class on this. And I, I think I have at times. Um, inside Out class and, and others others, um, the answer is that the world uh, is getting is getting ready for Mashiach in many many different ways. Uh, physically, it's getting ready for the Mashiach. Many diseases have been cured. Uh, there's less war in the world. I know it sounds strange, but there is less war in the world. Less people are being murdered. And spiritually, the world has to get ready as well. Uh, we have to solve our spiritual ills and our spiritual problems. And uh, the mystical teachings lead us to the more spiritual world, which will be when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, the world will be, it says, the knowledge of God will fill the earth like the water covers the sea. When Mashiach comes, we will be studying about God. God himself will be revealed. It says in the prophets, God himself will be revealed. So as a preparation for the times of Mashiach, we're getting ready by studying mystical teachings we are getting, we're getting closer to what happens when the Mashiach comes, right? Just like whenever you go somewhere, you prepare for it. If you want to go to the moon, you know, you go first practice in the ocean, feel zero gravity or whatever the astronauts do. Before Mashiach comes, we need to start getting the world ready in a manner uh, similar to what the world would be when Mashiach comes. Of course, it's not entirely the same, but get it ready to some extent. But second of all, the other reason why the teachings of Kabbalah are necessary nowadays because just as secular wisdom has proliferated in the world in the last couple hundred years, uh, we need the a greater also spiritual wisdom to be taught widely. The, the antidote that, and the way for us to stay, to stay strong in our Judaism is through the mystical teachings. There is Everybody today is actually affected by the mystical teachings, whether they consider themselves Hasidic or not. So many people have incorporated Hasidic or K- Kabbalistic ideas, messages, and practice into their lives. And so the way for us to actually stay religious is through the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidic mysticism. Uh, The Baal Shem Tov actually, uh, sorry, not the Baal Shem Tov, the the Altarebi, I think, once gave a parable for this. He says, um, imagine there's a king and uh, he has his prince, his prince is going to die. And the doctor says, the only way to save your prince, save your son, is by taking your crown jewel, grinding it up, and putting it in a drink and giving it to him. And the king agreed to do it. And everybody says, what do you mean? You're going to give up your crown jewel? He says, but yeah, but without my son, what what is it worth? And so similarly over here, God is, the Jewish people needed some inspiration, needed something to lift themselves up. God took his crown jewel, the esoteric teachings, and gave it to us in order to uplift us and survive the end of this exile, which has uh, become very difficult. I, I just saw a stat that uh, generally in the world people are becoming less religious and not, not, not just Jewish, uh, all religions, uh, maybe, well, I should say specifically Christianity in America, uh, but certain religions, uh, people are losing it because Westernism, you know, takes us away from religion and, uh, Western thought. And so we need to have something which is a strong and powerful, uh, teaching, which helps to inspire us. And so that is why uh, we need the Kabbalah and mysticism. So again, why is Kabbalah mysticism necessary more now? Number one, we're getting the world ready for a time when the world would be filled with a knowledge similar to what we're studying now. And number two, it helps keep us on the straight and out. It helps keep us inspired in the commandments that we should be doing. You know, today you meet people, they say, you know why should I keep kosher or Shabbat? We don't really have the reasons you know, in Jewish law, but mystically, they're very inspiring ideas. Okay, so now you want to know what exactly is Jewish mysticism, what exactly is Hasidic uh, teachings? Let me get to that in a moment. Let me just see the questions here. Anybody has any questions? Uh, Someone? oh my gosh, I was right. Yes, correct. If there is a diaspora Jews, would have to strengthen their faith, dealing with things, so okay. All right, so uh, anybody has any questions or comments before I uh, move on to actually demonstrating to you and showing you, what Kabbalah would look like if you study straight Kabbalah and what uh, mysticism would look like. Um, Any thoughts? No? That on the screen is uh, the Baal answer, why we need... uh, The coming of Mashiach, of course, represents the ultimate realization of what Judaism aims to accomplish. Hasidus is the inner soul of all the genres of Torah. It shows how all areas of Torah are interconnected. Studying God's relationship with his creations can be dangerous. Uh, Okay, all right. That's the next part any questions or comments yes
1: Um, if the uh teachings of the torah uh across here are what will help bring back the mashiach Mm -hmm. um why are the doors of synagogues not opening up to the world instead of turning them away
0: so uh, Judaism, we have a belief. Not everybody has to um, convert to bring the Mashiach. Um, so we're not we're not going to open up our doors to everybody because it's not necessarily our mission. There's different missions that people have to bring the Mashiach, and as Jewish people, we have a special mission. And if someone wants to join that, they have to be really ready and really serious um, because it's not simple. It's better 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 not to do it if you're not going to do it. Better not to do it if you're not going to do it right. If you're born Jewish. Well then, you're ready in it. You gotta, you gotta do it. You know.
1: But who trains the Noahides?
0: Who trains the Noahides? And that's that's been that's been a problem. Yes, who trains the Noahides? That's been a problem. There are some people who have gotten into it. There are some groups, um, but that's been a rough one. You, but
1: is uh, it supposed to be the rabbis' responsibility?
0: If there's enough of them. See, this is the thing. This is what happened. The Rebbe spoke about it. The Rebbe started to push the seven Noahide laws. Uh, I'm not only going to spend another minute on this because we want to get to the rest of the class, but. Uh, The Rebbe explained, why do we find Jews didn't, the seven Noahide laws were always known. Why didn't Jews discuss the seven Noahide laws for all these generations? He said, the simple answer was uh, persecution. You know, if God forbid a Jew was taught teaching religion to a non-Jew, you know, that was the end of it. So for many, many years, nobody spoke about the seven Noahide laws. It's only a really recent thing that it's come back. And, uh, you know, until we have enough manpower to deal with it. Um, I don't know. There's a couple people who deal with it. There's some rabbis who deal with it, but, um, it requires somebody dedicated to it really. And there's, there's a few of them, but not that many yet. So, uh, if anybody's looking for a job, but (laughs) I I have enough work here, you know? Um, all right. So let us take a look over here at a text. So we're going to show you, um, What First, what Kabbalah would look like if you were to study it without any Hasidic philosophy and why. So again, I gave you all the intro. The intro of the class pretty much was Kabbalah is awesome. Kabbalah is special, but Kabbalah is esoteric and it's secret and it could be dangerous. Uh, Therefore, it was hidden for many years. Now it's being taught. Hasidic philosophy helps everybody understand it. We're going to show you how that's the case. Uh, Please move this one away from the standard application to craft. Okay. Uh, How about let's close that. Okay because that is not what we were trying to get to. So uh, let's take a look at a Kabbalistic text. This is from the Zohar, the most classic book of uh, Jewish uh, mysticism. And it says like this and we'll read it and hopefully you will all explain it to me, okay? The the Zohar, by the way, is written in Aramaic. Like many, the, 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 the author of the Zohar lived in the times of the Talmud, so he wrote in Aramaic mostly. At the beginning of the manifestation of God, of the king's will, so far, so good, right? Probably means, king probably means God, the beginning of God's manifestation of his will. Okay, let's continue. The lamp of darkness engraved engravings in the supernal purity. That sounds like a Satan idea or something, right? It doesn't sound very Jewish. It emanated, so you can see already how somebody can twist these words, right? And get bad ideas. It emanated from the most concealed of all concealed things. Oh my gosh, maybe deep inside the king, there's dark things from the secret of endlessness. Okay, no idea. All right, then it gets even better. A formless vapor was inserted into a circle. Any thoughts on that? Maybe Blaze the Bubble Man blowing. You know, you ever said how he goes? What?
3: I, I tried to read this passage, Rabbi. It totally didn't make sense to me. Like, That's it's it. out That's there. One second,
0: Anita. That's exactly what I'm showing. Okay. It,
3: it yeah. sounds like uh, voracious. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, that was neither white nor black nor red nor green nor any color at all. Okay, so then just say it was no color. When he began its measurements, he created bright colors to shine forth. Whose measurements? From within the center of the lamp, a fountain spouted from which colors... Um, There's, you know, it's kind of a problematic text. It's a little bit hard to understand it. But you can understand how somebody could take that and say, these are the deepest teachings of the Torah. Look what this teaches. And, you know, if you... You can make whatever you want out of it. You can make a cockamamie out of it, right? You can take it. And the Kabbalistic teachers, how do do you commit spiritual ideas to words? You really can't because spiritual is not physical. You either feel it and see it or you don't. However, you have to write something. So the mystics wrote words. They wrote things. You look in the Talmud, you find mystical stories, very strange stories because You cannot actually write something that's transcendental. But you write something that seems similar to it. You write something that that connects with it, but you cannot actually write physically what you're trying to say. It doesn't actually work. You cannot write metaphysical things on a physical paper. So the Kabbalists wrote in very much a hidden kind of lexicon. Now, when they spoke to each other, they were all spiritual people. They understood each other. There was no worry of it going wrong. But now when people... The Kabbalah centers taking the Zohar and reading whatever they want into it, that becomes a problem. So, what Hasidic philosophy did for the Zohar was it took certain mystical ideas, like that text. We'll show you how some of that text may be understood, but not right away. It took certain ideas and it brought it to the layman, brought it so. Uh, when people ask me rabbi do you study kabbalah i actually don't study straight up kabbalah i don't understand when i read a book of kabbalah when i read a book of book book of kabbalah that's what it looks like to me i don't know what it's saying i pick up books of hasidic philosophy which are you almost want to say kabbalah applied taking kabbalistic ideas using the language of kabbalah and applying it to the deepest the most important parts of our life and important parts of the torah yes huh tanya is one great example yes tanya is a great example of kabbalistic ideas applied in a language that we can understand now even the tanya is not easy to read but it's a lot easier than that right yes yes 100 um okay so we are now going to discover a little uh bit of hasidic thought and then we'll come back to the text and show you how discovering some of the hasidic thought will explain some of that text but to understand all of that text uh first of all i don't understand all of it Second of all, it would take a long time. So let's start with text number six. Text number six. Um, Okay. And I am sharing the screen, so that's good. So text number six says like this. This is from the Talmud. The Talmud says, just as God fills the world, the soul fills the body. Now, that that sounds very nice. and What it simply means is that um, just like our soul gives life to our body, God gives life to the world. Uh, Secondly, it can mean just as our soul expresses itself through the body, God may be expressing himself through the world. Um, The teachings of Kabbalah um, expound on uh, many other aspects of this idea, and it says like this. If, just like the soul fills the body, God fills the world, if we want to understand the God that fills the world, if we can understand our soul that fills our body, we can understand a little bit more about the world. Again, by understanding our soul, we can understand a little bit
1: more about the world.
0: Where do you have that concept and idea in the Torah? Where do you have the concept and idea that by understanding ourselves, we can understand God? Spoke about this in the Tanya class recently. Any thoughts? huh there, there was one text over there but what's another one
3: our dual uh evil inclination and uh, and no,
0: uh, no, no, no. a very explicit verse uh in the beginning of genesis god says what does god say let us make man in our image god says let us make man in our image mm-hmm. yes. right god says let us make man in our image so which means that uh somehow some way we are made in god's image now what does that actually mean we're made in god's image i spoke about this in the tanya class if you came to the tanya class you probably we have are some creators, idea.
1: creators, just like right. god creates we are creators
0: well it says the word image so this is the this is yes to an extent the problem with saying we're made in god's image is a problem because you can't make an image of god right um here you have a text from the torah i put it up on the screen text mm-hmm. number seven Guard your souls exceedingly, as you have not seen any form on the day that God spoke to you at Choreb from within the fire, lest you be corrupted and make for yourselves a graven image, the form of any symbol, and be led astray to bow to it and worship it. So here we're told that we are creating God's image. So wouldn't you think if you want to make an image of God, you make an image of a person, right? Would follow, but the Torah obviously warns us God has no image. So the question is, does God have an image or does God not have an image, right? there in
4: the torah
3: it's the light it's a spi-
0: spiritual it's in
4: a spiritual image of god not in...
3: yeah more like a light okay
0: okay okay one second all right so one second i'll get to it all right so obviously everybody's right it's not a physical image right <laughs> a spiritual image of god so let me ask you so now are you telling me that you can define uh god in some uh, type of
4: no, no, not not so it's a, in the essence so it's a uh Free will and discernment of good and evil, and understanding. So that's, I mean, the aspects. Uh, If, like, I'll give you a small example. We make toys that represents people. It's not. So this is uh, anecdotal representation of the. uh, 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 I have to say of the God. So that's that's how we represent. That's how images like toys represent people. This is how we can uh, uh, represent. Toys represent people, so we represent God? No, no, I'm saying in a similar thing, when you look at the toy. Yeah. And you can't say that it's the same thing as us, but they resemble, there is a vague resemblance.
0: Right, the the problem is, the problem is it's very hard for us to say that God has (laughs) any type of form, even spiritual form. If God is infinite, it's hard to say that we want to define him in anything specific you have over here the prophet isaiah says the holy one to what can you liken me that i would be compared can't compare god to anything god is infinite infinite has um no beginning but one second on the other hand we do know god has certain qualities as we have here in from exodus and chronicles it says God is compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abundant in loving kindness unto you, God is greatness and power, beauty, triumph, splendor unto you, God is kingship. Um, so the question is: this is the great paradox that drives the Kabbalah. By the way this paradox is what drives the Kabbalah. On the one hand, we say God has no form, God is infinite. At the same time, we ascribe to God certain things, certain attributes um which describing god as anything is a problem because if he's infinite how can we describe him as anything so the short answer that the Kabbalist answer is based on this based on this verse in text number 11 where it says like this would the one who implants the ear not hear would the one who forms the eye not see right so does god have an eye god doesn't have an eye right does god have an ear god doesn't have an ear no but he sees But God does see, how do we know God sees? Because if God creates seeing, he must have that himself, right? If God Mm -hmm. creates hearing, God must be able to hear himself. Yes. Um, Just one second, I got to um, hear a lot of feedback. So I'm just gonna mute everybody for a moment over here. And I'll mute in a moment, okay. Um, You can unmute, okay. So God created in this world, we know he created um, many beautiful things. Desire, love, beauty, justice. uh, Any quality that we can imagine exists in this world. And there's probably more qualities that don't exist in this world, right? Um, Can we say God is limited to the qualities that we see in this world? No, but we definitely know that the qualities that exist in this world, he himself must have. In order to give, you must have. But of course, anytime you give, a definition you give a quality you you give somebody a quality you're also defining them to a certain extent but god of course cannot be limited he cannot be defined and so therefore we must conclude god has these qualities but he's not defined by them right so god must be kind but he's not defined by being kind god is a creator but he's not defined just by being a creator he's much more than being a creator another way of saying it is while we cannot attribute any quality to god we cannot take away any attribute from God, right? Just as you can't say God, there is something that God is, you can't say there is something that God isn't. So, all of this is to say it's really confusing. We're saying, on the one hand, God has all these qualities without being qualified by them, without being defined by them. Kabbalah wants to give us a way to understand it. So, what Kabbalah says, is it says there's a concept called the Tens wrote. Tens wrote mean like this. God himself is not defined by any of, uh, sorry, I see there's a lot of messages. God himself is not defined by any type of quality that we attribute to him. But, well, there's a way to say it. Let's see if we can... Um, you know, let's put it on the screen. Um, let's take a look over here.
1: Share. Okay.
0: Let me just uh, skip that one. So here you have the model of the Tens wrote. The model of the Tens wrote, they come to explain the great paradox of God's involvement in our existence. And... This was an was a interesting thing. You know, you were saying earlier about a table. Does a table, re, uh, sorry, not a table. You were saying earlier about, the, you know, does a toy represent a human being, right? Let's go back to creating something, right? If I take a piece of wood, if I take a piece of wood and I build a table out of it, there's the actual table that I'm creating. That's something that's outside of me. At the same time, there's an internal creation. In order for me to make a table, I had to have, so to speak, a table in my head. I had to have a table in my psyche. I can't create something without having any type of item in it in myself. An actor playing a role, you know, a storyteller telling over a story, a teacher trying to communicate an idea, um, they're not creating anything new. They're creating something external that was already inside of them. You have to have something in order to share it with other people. So in other words, every creation exists On two levels. There's before you build a table, you need to have you need to build, you need to build a table in your mind. And uh before you write a novel, you need to have all the characters of the novel in your mind, inside your own imagination. Only then can you build the external. And according to the teachings of Kabbalah, the same is true with God. If God wanted to create compassion in this world, he first created compassion in himself. In other words, just like when you want to create a table, you first have to have the form of the idea of a table in your mind. If God wants to have compassion, he first has to create compassion within himself. God himself doesn't really have compassion. What do I mean he doesn't have compassion? God has everything, which also means he has nothing. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing specific. In order for God to create compassion in this world, he first has to create it himself. Just like when you want to create a table externally, first have to have it to some extent inside of you. The Kabbalists say the same thing. When God wants to create compassion, kindness, mercy, He has to create it to an extent in himself. And this is what they call the 10 spherot, the 10 emanations. Why are these so important? Because these allow us to have some type of connection with God. In other words, if God doesn't have, you know, as if it's just God, infinite, and then there's this world, that's us um and god doesn't have to have anything that's in this world within himself he's just infinite um it's harder for us to feel connected to him by god first creating within himself the elements that we find within this world we find it easier to connect with him right like our sages say if you want to be like god be kind you want to be like god be compassionate uh you want to be the light you know we relate to god when god is nice to us we relate to that it connects with us so this is why the Kabbalists talk about what's called the 10 spherot. God had to create within himself the 10 divine emanations. First, create it within himself in order to pass it on to others. That's what emanation means. That's why the Kabbalists use the word emanation. Emanation means that it's still a part of you, but it's an it's emanated. It's still internal, right? So again, we're going to show it on the screen. In every creation, there's an external creation and an internal. External, you're creating something on the outside of yourself. Internally, you're creating something within yourself. You can only create something externally once you have it internally. Similarly, God imparted traits to himself that would describe his relationship with his creation. And here we have on the screen, uh, and you also have it in your book on page 255, the 10 Sfirot, the 10 emanations, the 10 divine emanations. These are the ways with which God can relate to the world. If this complicated you, you should know that it is complicated. It is a complicated concept. And in fact, what as one, one of my great teachers once said, what the, the Kabbalists both came to answer a question uh, and they also created more problems. So, <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, what we have from here, is that we can feel more of a connection to God. This is in fact, what um, a lot of um, mysticism does in general, where it connects a lot of our actions to things that are going on in spiritual worlds. If there was no spiritual world to talk of, it was just us. And then God, we would have a much harder time connecting with what our action does. In other words, if you know, as you can imagine a world like this. There's God and he just wants us to do a bunch of things and our actions don't really do much, right? There, that's a possibility, right? Think about this possibility. God creates the world. He gives us 613 things to do. And he says, if you do it for me, I'll reward you. And why are you doing it? Well, God just wants it. He just wants you to keep kosher. He wants to drive you a little crazy. He wants to give charity. But when you actually do a mitzvah, nothing really good nothing really good happens, except for that you're doing God's will. So you're making him happy because you're listening to him. It's like a parent that would tell their child to do things that have no meaning. By adding the spiritual worlds, esoteric wisdom is really telling us that when you do a mitzvah, not only are you fulfilling God's will, there's something powerful spiritually happening at that moment. There's something good, there's a good energy you're creating. When you give charity, if you would be able to see the spiritual light that you're creating at that moment, and the Kabbalists explain, what is that spiritual light? It has a work and has it illuminate the worlds. Um, it's it's giving you more of a vision of what you're doing. It's giving you more of a feeling towards what you're accomplishing. So again, could you live your life? Could you live a Jewish life just, you know, without the esoteric and just saying, Well, I'm just going to listen to what God says you could, but adding on the mystical ideas, feeling that when you're doing something, you're, you're accomplishing something besides for just listening to God. um, It definitely gives a greater feeling and uh, we feel more accomplished uh, in what we're doing. And um, so we, as human beings, we are creating an image of God, just as God has these 10 spheres, these 10 divine emanations. We have within ourselves, if you learn Tanya, the 10 powers of the soul. And the different mitzvahs that we do connect with the different powers of our soul. And so to speak, when we do a mitzvah, we're drawing light. We're connecting our power of our soul to the, to the God's emanation. And then we're creating a mitzvah. Um, so this explains, you know, once you delve into this, it can explain a lot of different things that we do. For example, whenever you do something good, you're supposed to do it with your right hand. Because mystically, the right is kindness. So if you want to give charity, um, any mitzvah generally you do with your right hand. You might say you do it to fill in with your left hand, right? But you tie it with your right hand. Uh, you bind it with your right hand, exactly. Um, that's why there's even a way when you get dressed, you're supposed to put on the right side, then the left side first. When you put on your shirt, you put on the right sleeve, then the left sleeve. What? I'm a lefty. You're a lefty. So your, right ca- your, your Kabbalistic cosmos are all split. Okay? And there's a Kabbalistic explanation to that too. See, this is where Kabbalah is so beautiful. Personally, in my life, what I find so beautiful about Kabbalah, and really I learned it through Chassidus, is how it gives me a beauty in understanding all the details of the mitzvahs. You know, uh, Jewish law can only give you a general idea why a mitzvah is important. When you study Kabbalah, and again, I don't study straight up Kabbalah, I should say Hasidic philosophy, it gives you a... Gives you really an enjoyment of the commandments because you really feel how even the details of what you're doing have meaning. And the same thing, when you study Torah, as I've given a couple classes, sometimes it can give you an understanding of sections of the Torah without Kabbalistic understanding. You you don't fully grasp it. We spoke about the story of Moses putting the snake on the staff. You can look at my class, Snakey Staff. It was a good class because it really showed us how the details of the story in the Torah, once you add the mystical element, it all like feels like, wow, it's written so perfectly. So again, Jewish law, I'm not not bashing Jewish law at all. God forbid. In fact, if you want to say, this is how we describe it. The revealed parts of Torah, or shall I say, the non-esoteric parts of Torah are called the body. That's the body of Torah. You need the body. The mitzvahs, they're the body. That's the actions. That's what you're doing. The soul of the Torah is the mystical teachings of the Torah. The soul of what you're doing are the esoteric ideas. That's the soul of it. So you need the Jewish law because the Jewish law needs to tell you, what is it that you're supposed to do? But then you need the soul of it. It's like we can live our lives. We need to eat. We need to drink. We need to go to sleep. We need to do all the physical things that we need to do. But then we need a life, right? You know, you can live without a life. You need a life. You need to be alive. This is why Hasidim, we're known as happy. They live this life. It gives them a happiness and a chayas and a joy. It gave them a joy in their life. And so this is what mystical teachings can do for us. So people sometimes look at the mystical teachings and say, what is it talking about? It's talking about some spiritual worlds and some... Why do I need to know about the spiritual worlds? And this is the answer. When you appreciate the spiritual world, which by the way, the spiritual world is not somewhere else. The spiritual world is right here because it doesn't take a place. When you do a mitzvah and and we say, you know, you bring light to all the spiritual worlds. It's happening right here where you are. It's not somewhere else. It's not in a different place. It's exactly where you are. So the study of the spiritual worlds and spirituality gives you an appreciation of what you're doing. You don't anymore feel like you're doing something small, you're doing something big now. As uh, as uh, the Alta Rebbe once wrote, that, um, you know, if we were to see, if we were to actually see what we were doing spiritually, you know, we would almost go Meshuggah. We would, you know, uh, what amazing things that we're accomplishing. Uh, but we don't typically see it. Hasidic teachings can give us uh, a little ink, and a little inkling, and a little glimpse into what we're accomplishing and into what we're doing and give us really an enjoyment and a passion in Judaism and uh, gives a passion not just in the midst of, as I said, but even in the study of Torah. What I love about Hasidic teachings, how it can tie in and, and explain details and tie in so many different parts of the Torah to see the oneness and the unity within the Torah. So I, I got way off topic over here. I don't even know how I got here, but what I, oh, what I was saying was is that we are creating an image of God means, that God had to create within himself these 10 divine emanations to relate to the world. But now we can relate to him. And now there's a spiritual world that we can relate to. And uh, there's God that we can relate to. Again, like I said, you can relate to God as infinite, but it's very hard. Us, infinite, finite, infinite. And therefore there's, the Kabbalah has this whole lexicon and teaches us about this uh, emanations that God made of himself in order to help us feel more connected to Him, that's the way I see it. It helps us feel more connected to Him. When you, if God was just infinite, and there was, and we were just here, and there was no in between, um, it would be much harder to feel those feelings of connection.
1: So, um, I said I would
0: I would explain to you that passage. Um, so let me show you one. One text of air which will help explain some of what we read in the first complicated passage. Because all of what I told you seemingly doesn't explain anything that I've said. So let's take a look at text number 15. So we're discussing that God creates these emanations, so to speak, these feelings of himself of kindness and love and severity, whatever it is. How does that actually work? How do we understand it? So there's a lot of ways of the Kabbalist understanding, but one way of understanding it is in text 15. And uh, in text 15, it says we can understand it by way of example of colored glasses. Colored glasses means like this: you take light or water, right? Uh, I think he gives an does he give an analogy of light or water? Let's see, water. Okay, so imagine you take water. Water is a, is is a color clear, but you stick it into colored vessels. You stick one in purple, a purple pitcher, one in a green pitcher, one in a yellow pitcher, all different colored pitchers. Suddenly, the the water to us will look like different colors, but it itself is really a single color. The water itself hasn't changed, but how it looks like to us that it's acquired a different color. And as he writes there, This imposition is only in relation to how the water appears to those who see it, not in relation to the water itself. So it is with the sefirot, God's divine emanations. The vessels in the analogy are the divine attributes that we call loving kindness, power, beauty, and so on. Each is colored in accordance with its function, white, red, and green. The light of the emanator, which is the essence of the 10 divine energies that flow into the 10 sefirot, are like the colorless water and as they transcend all various variation and functions. The variation in their effect on the world is only due to differences in the function of the vessels. And so that's one way of understanding these emanations. How do we understand this infinite God that suddenly has all these emanations? So one way of understanding it is uh, the colored glasses. Other Kabbalists have a different opinion. Like I said, you can spend all day studying Kabbalah. so what is all of this? Um, so that's, you know, one explanation. That's that's actually a Kabbalistic explanation. It starts to give us an idea, but still, um, that, that basically means that uh, it doesn't really give us yet an appreciation for how deeply God is involved with us. So we're going to look now at a more Hasidic explanation of that. And this is an example of children okay so let's take a look at a more powerful explanation okay so imagine you were living um you were living in kabbalistic times before hasidic philosophy and someone told you god has emanations you say and they say tell you what are emanations and uh, they tell you oh emanations they're like uh water and pitchers you, just, you might still be lost right so comes along hasidic philosophy and takes it down for us another level and here it gives a, a greater example and it says like this gives an example like a child playing with a parent. When a parent plays with a child, let's say shoots and ladders, the parent doesn't care for the game. The parent is beyond the game. Shoots and ladders is for kids. But yet the parent, when they're playing shoots and ladders with a child, is very much invested in that game with the child. They place themselves in the child mentality to the point that the child can relate to it. And so it says. Similarly, this is what God's divine emanations. Our relationship with God is like that. God, of course, is much more transcendent, quote unquote, in dealing with us. But just like a parent that will go down and relate to his children, similarly, a a uh, God comes down and uh, he relates to us, just like a parent relates to his child. And so this gives us an even greater visualization of how God relates to us. And this is a more, I would say, more warm and fuzzy feeling. Again, so when you think of, um, when I do a mitzvah that evokes God's loving kindness, now I suddenly can have a relationship with God. God loves me like a child. He's going to come to me. He's not just sending his colored lights at me, but um, he, God is God, but yet he is coming down to relate to us like a parent to a child. And um this is the model that um, Hasidic philosophy adds, so you can see how it's much greater for the layman's terms, much greater for the layman to understand. Um, so let's go back to the uh, original text, see if uh, see if we have the original text up. Let's go back to that original text. Text five, okay. five. yeah, I'll also share it on the screen. And um.
1: If you find any of this complicated by the way that's
0: because it is okay um let me see here okay all right i'm sharing the right thing now okay let's take a look here at skip here let's
1: skip this one okay
0: so, we had the text. So, we're going to explain to you a couple things. All right. So, we said earlier, you remember, we said supernal purity, right? At the beginning of the manifestation of the king's will, the lamp of darkness engraved engravings in the supernal purity. So, so far, we understand what supernal purity is. That's the undefinable essence of God, right? We've discussed how God, you cannot define him. You define him, that's a problem. Let's take a look at another word engraved engravings. Engraved engravings is a hint to the Sifirot, the God's divine emanations. Engraving means internal, right? When you write on a paper, you're writing externally, right? When you engrave on something, it's internal. So that's what says engraved engravings. Remember how we discussed the table in your head? God's emanations are in himself still. And so that's why he uses the word engraved engravings. So we're already understanding a little bit more. What is the lamp of darkness? The lamp of darkness is the Tsimtsum. Symptom is how God contracts himself, just as the parent lowers themselves down to the child, the lamp of darkness, God contracting himself, darkness, darkness, meaning hiding some of the light, allows God to engrave engravings to give himself these divine emanations in the supernal purity in the undefinable essence of God. So here you already have an example of um, how you can understand a little bit of it. Let's. You want to keep going. All right. Uh, even if you don't, I'm going to continue. All right. Uh, we wrote that god was neither white right if you if you look at the uh, middle it said a formless vapor was inserted into a circle which we're not going to focus on the circle yet and it says was neither white nor black nor green nor red nor any color at all and so that is a example of what we spoke about the colored vessels and uh so there you have just again an example of a little bit of Kabbalistic ideas, how you can start to understand them through Hasidic ideas. What am I all trying to present to you today? I'm trying to present to you that although Kabbalah is a great study, I personally don't advise you to study straight Kabbalah. Now, if you're very spiritually in tuned, um, maybe you can. And it's possible that you are. But generally, um, I think that studying Hasidic philosophy, which is hard enough itself, um is the way to go hasidic philosophy can elevate your life change your life and uh, kabbalah's teachings are meant for all of us and hasidic teachings came to us to help us appreciate how kabbalah can enhance and uh, change our lives and as we said earlier be the antidote to um you know western influences just to, just by way of example um when people talk about chabad i always say chabad is both a movement and a philosophy it's both a philosophy and a movement we our philosophy inspires us in what we do how is it that the rebbe now today it's easier the world is more connected but how is it that the rebbe sent his students to far-flung places before there was a lot of connection they would stay there for a year or two they retained their their passion for judaism and they spread it to others how how was he able to send Rabbis to L.A. in the dark days. Don't, people don't know, by the way, Miami too. Miami was like a, it was a desert wasteland of Judaism for sure. Um, how is it that people were able to go out there to, to all the far-flung places of the world? They're inspired by the philosophy. Hasidic philosophy inspires you and lets you see the world differently. Just let me give you a very simple example. If you walk into it, if you're in an airport, and uh, Chabad Rabbi comes to you and says, would you like to put on tefillin? Uh, you may be a little embarrassed. It's the airport. There's a lot of people here. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Or maybe it's in Manhattan on a busy street. How? Or maybe you're going to work. You're embarrassed to wear your kippah to work. Right? You're embarrassed. You don't want to show it in public. How can I... But when you look at the world from a spiritual viewpoint, when you see spirituality everywhere, when you see that really this world is a spiritual playground, and I can bring light wherever I go, then you look around and you say, they're all here because I'm doing this mitzvah. This whole world is really nothing. It's just spiritual. It's colored glass. It's colored glass. There's really spirituality. Let me connect to the divine right now, right here by... By connecting to spirituality, it helps you remove any shame of what you're doing because you realize that what you're doing is the reality. What everybody else is doing, they're getting caught up in the colors. You are going to the source, to the colorless uh, water. You're connecting to the reality. Uh, although that's that's it's kind of, I'm, I'm inversing the example. But that's really the idea is once we see the spirituality around us, uh, we don't anymore um, feel we lose the pull of the world i'll give another great example there was um a great sada called rabbi israel region we're out of time so i have two more minutes so I'll, I'll finish off with this uh, well actually there's one last text that i want to do too but rabbi israel region he was once studying in yashin as a student and um there, there's a, a teaching in the Talmud, which says like this, it says that if someone forgets what day is Shabbos, they're traveling in the desert, they have no cell phone on them, no cell service, and they forget what day is Shabbos, what do you do, right? We all know Shabbos comes at least once every seven days, so you don't know what day it is, so how do you, you know, how how are you going to march Shabbos? And Rabbi Shogh Ruzhiner said, I don't understand how anybody could lose sight of what day Shabbos as he said himself as a child because he was a more spiritual person he says on Shabbos the world looks different he saw that spirituality he saw how the world was different on Shabbos if you study Hasidic philosophy when it comes if you study about Rosh Hashanah when it comes Rosh Hashanah you're going to feel a special aura and light about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, is, we have cl- our class in Rosh Hashanah. We discuss Rosh Hashanah is a time when God's kingship shines on this earth. Yom Kippur, when the atonement, all of the holidays, Shabbos, you'll feel the more you study about it, the more you'll feel connected to that day because you'll feel the spiritual aura that is really shining in the world in that day. You just don't see it. But if you study about it, you'll connect with it. Shabbos will be more meaningful to you. Sukkot will be more meaningful to you. Shavuot. Eating matzah even will be more meaningful to you, okay? That hard cardboard matzah. If you study about the spiritual meaning of matzah, suddenly when you'll you you'd be like, oh, that's so delicious. That's so wonderful. You know, I can't wait to have a little bit more of that cardboard matzah. And that's it, you know? All of the mitzvah suddenly become more enjoyable, uh, more meaningful, and that's really what I want you to walk away with the class today is uh, having a greater appreciation for the spirituality that's all around us and waiting for us to take it. Uh, in conclusion of the course, I'm going to read a text here uh the final text of the class because we have discovered many many different books and i keep telling you i want you to study all of them right so what are you going to do what are you going to do uh the answer is of course you're going to study all of them but in the meantime uh what are you going to do you know what should you start with first so um well, you should start of course first of all with my classes but after that um beyond that you should all study at home so let's take a look at this text over here this is the final text of today's class um it says like this Levi and Rabbi Shimon the son of Rebbe were sitting before Rebbe and they were studying the Torah portion when the book was concluded Levi said let the book of Proverbs be brought before us Rabbi Shimon said let the book of Psalms be brought before us so they all had their preferences of what they like to learn Levi was compelled to agree, and the book of Psalms was brought. When they came to this verse, but only in God's Torah is his desire, Rebbe expounded its meaning and said, a person can only learn Torah in the area that their heart desires. Said Levi, Rebbe, you have given me permission to get up and leave, because I didn't want to study this to begin with. So what's the idea? Is that at the end of the day, study something that you have passion in. Um, that's going to keep you doing it, you know. Find passion. There are times, of course, you'll be bored and anything that you study, and it's not always exciting. If you know, if you if you turn everything off when it's not exciting, you'll never get anywhere. But generally, it says, A person should always study in the sections that they desire and their heart desires. So we have covered so much in this class. Hopefully, you have a better appreciation for the Jewish library. Um, but most importantly um we want you to walk away with um picking up another text another jewish text there is so much so much that there is to study and uh, i hope each and every single one of you will study a little bit more in your own life um let's end off with this
3: Welcome to the pre-boarding announcement for Supernatural, a four-session journey into the spiritual world of signs, spirits, and superstition in Jewish belief. Please direct your attention to the following information as we walk you through our voyage. Our journey begins with exploring the essence of dreams. Discover which dreams hold meaningful messages and which are just noise to ignore, not to be taken seriously. We ask that you remain seated as we'll traverse the heights of astrology. We'll discover if the stars have any power on affecting our nature, behavior, or destiny. We may experience some turbulence as we travel through the world of jinxes and curses. See how Judaism navigates the social realities of jealousy and curses and where the real power lies. On our final leg of the journey, we will experience the true role of spirits, angels, and ghosts. We'll also touch down in the afterlife and learn how to keep in touch with lost loved ones. It'll be quite the ride one you don't want to miss. On behalf of everyone at Supernatural, we hope you'll join us on this incredible experience.
0: <laughs> that was actually kind of disturbing. <laughs> I don't know who makes their videos, but... Um, oh,
1: that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I can't wait. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a good course. I'm not sure about the, uh, the video and the presentation, but... Uh,
1: I love yeah. it, it's the great. Story- the stewardess is really... <sighs>